Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's PPG Advocacy Panel. I am your moderator, Don Hansen, and we have several people with us today. And our topic today is what key skills, now this is skills, not knowledge, should pet professionals be able to demonstrate competently? And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And as our panelists get their first chance at addressing that question, I'll let them answer, introduce themselves at the same time. But uh, who would like to start? And who wants to make me pick someone? I can start. Thank you, Judy. You get points. Oh, I do? What do I get yes. with my points? <laughs> I'm Judy Luther, and I'm the chair of the Canine Committee with the PPG, and I also do behavior consulting with pet dogs. Um, I think one of the key skills that a trainer needs is the ability to interact kindly and effectively with pet owners. A lot of times that communication is critically important and a lot of times that can be a challenge depending on what's going on but i feel like we should always be focusing on our communication and interaction with the pet parents excellent who would like to add to that i think um i mean this is always going to be <laughs> my <laughs> angle but Especially now, I don't think this was so true even 10 years ago, but I think people really need, well, I think people really need to have mechanical skills. I think that's important and that there's a number of different categories of mechanical skills that I'm sure we can talk about more. But increasingly so, I think people need to understand how to critically evaluate and apply the science that's coming out because we didn't used to have as much science but now we're getting a lot. And so I think it's becoming more and more important for people to understand how to read those papers and how to correctly apply that information. So I want to, I want you to, you, you mentioned mechanical skills and I want to stick with that for a little bit here and parse that out because you suggested there are a number of different mechanical skills and that's something I think is very important too. And I think it's something, and you guys disagree if uh, you, you want to, but most of our clients don't understand the value of that. So we not only have mm -hmm. to understand the importance of that, but we have to also do what Judy suggested. We have to teach our clients how important these mechanical skills are. So how about some discussion on what those skills are and how we communicate it to the clients, which this may be the first time they've ever heard this from a dog trainer. I just want to add a little bit to that, Don, as well, because I, one of the things that in my previous career, um, we used to open luxury hotels and within literally 12 weeks, we would take a workforce of, say, 2000 people and have to get them trained to do specific individual skills so that they could then perform those skills. And I think what we're doing in, in um, our industry is quite similar because we are not imparting knowledge and academic knowledge. Well, we are, but it's not the majority of what we're doing. Our academic knowledge either lays the foundation or supplements this, the mechanical skills that we're teaching owners. And it's very different teaching somebody how to perform a mechanical skill than it is teaching somebody an academic concept. So this is why, and I'm just going to piggyback off Judy, and it's why we always speak to the fact that we have to be good people people. 
because we're not, unless you are just doing boarding training or day training, you are not actually training a dog. You are training a person to perform a mechanical skill, which if you are good at your dog training career, in my opinion, just goes through the roof because I have seen and watched and observed and know of a lot of really good dog trainers, but they're not able to impart that information to clients. So clients just don't get it. And if they don't get it and they don't get the results because their mechanical skills aren't good, because their timing's not good, because their process isn't good, they bl we know they blame our approach and methodology. They don't necessarily blame the individual trainer. So I think when we look at skills, we have to look at anything that is physically being performed by a client, whether that is law reward, whether it's specific behaviors, whether it's, you know, how to sort of manipulate an environment. I think all of those are really important so that we can remove ourselves from the training process and the owner, not understanding the concepts as well, can continue training. And I'm just going to leave it with one thing and then we, you guys can jump in. Um, I, when I got my puppy three years ago, I went to probably five or six puppy classes in the Tampa Bay area because I wanted to expose her to everything. I was horrified, horrified, because in every lesson I went to, without exception, by week three or four, not only were pet owners dropping out, the attrition was unbelievable, but the pet owners that stayed behind couldn't even get a marker correctly done with timing because there was no emphasis put on how their mechanical skills worked. And I think that's one of the challenges we have in our industry that we, we need to get much better at recognizing we are training people to do a mechanical skill. And if we don't do that, or we fall short of that, the pet owner is not getting the results they want. They're just not. And then they're moving over to this, what the dark side or the other side. Yeah. Sam. So I think along with that, uh, and I, I see this happening with a lot of newer trainers, um, they have a tendency to use the uh, jargon and, and the scientific words, etc. And you can see, you know, pet owners just deer in the headlights look, um, you know, we're teaching basic concepts. And, and so we've got to teach it in a very basic and simplistic way. And a lot of times if people would use analogies, especially for, you know, pet parents who have kids, uh, a lot of times that'll make sense. But I'm trying to, I don't know, impress, show off whatever, the fact that you know, you've been to whatever school or, or took whatever courses or have whatever uh, credentials uh, immediately will have a, a pet owner go, you know what, Okay, 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 whatever. But you can tell by the first, uh, second, or third time there, they're already they've already cast it aside. They they just they don't care anymore. Uh, we have a tendency to be somewhat over enthusiastic because we've been taking webinars, seminars, etc., and we have to realize who we're talking to. Uh, this is not a group of trainers or behavior specialists or whatever we're sitting down with. It's ordinary people like us. And if we can remember how we were learning things and use that at the same time when we're teaching pet owners, I, I think we'll get a lot more accomplished. Uh, you know, I'm going to throw in a, a little bit to add on to that as well, especially because we're having some things said now about science and evaluation and uh, some of the technical language and things like that. 
I think there's a place where language and language within the training community is failing on a couple fronts. And one is that we're not really learning the correct lingo. Uh, I see that all the time. And the second is then we're not transcribing that. So this is where that failure happens. So you're learning a particular jargon, but it's jargon to, you know, such and such certification or this person's book or that person's uh, philosophy or whatever it is. And we're seeing that, we, I mean, there's constant making up of stuff to brand things. And then that becomes the jargon. But then on top of that, people are learning that particular jargon and not learning how to communicate with people that don't know that jargon. So we have a Tower of Babel that has happened as a result in the training community. That is people that can't talk to the people that actually do the science behind the stuff and people that can't talk to the owners that don't do any of that, but don't know the jargon that they've learned. Right. So I think where there needs to be some resolution for that is a there needs to be better adherence to the correct terminology. And then when we have that learning, so the same thing that happens is you, you see medical doctors, there are, there are some that are graded it, there's some that are not graded it, right? But most medical doctors should be getting some type and most veterinarians and most people in any type of technical profession, they're not just being trained the specific terminology that they need to adhere to. And it's not, whoa, whoa, whoa yeah, but I don't like that definition. No, no, but that's the definition. That's the term. That's what we've decided. So you need to learn that. And you need to understand that there's importance to understanding that. And then you need to know how to describe those concepts in the absence of that terminology to people that are not trained in that technical skill. I think when we make the separation between this is what these terms are, this is what the science says or, or whatever it is, the profession, the science, what is determining what this language is, then we can be a lot more clear in differentiating that for people that don't speak behaviorese or whatever language it is that, that we're being trained in. And this is, by the way, happening again right now. Now we're seeing these kind of things where there's this reinvigoration of people trying to uh, bring ethology back to trainers. But some of the things that are being described is not from anything academic in terms of ethology. It is not an ethological or behavior systems or comparative psychologist or any any of that. It's just completely made up stuff that people are saying is somehow tied to evolution. So it's the same thing we're seeing again, where people are just deciding that this is this is their brand of what becomes supposed expertise. And that's, I think, creating some of this confusion. And I just want right. to add one thing to that. About eight years ago, when we facilitated not to get exams in the development of the examination with um, subject matter experts for the Pet Professional Accreditation Board, one of the things that was most difficult to do, speaking to Eduardo's point, is, is to have questions on an examination that you that somebody who understands the generic body of that topic can get. Not you don't have to have done someone's particular course or program. Because because like Eduardo said, there is a branch that is the pure, as for want of a better word, 
where you have to reference or cite back to. You can't use concepts that somebody's developed for their own certification or, or program. And I and I and I, I, I I'm, I'm nicking that. I always nick his quotes. Tower of Babel. I just I bloody love that. I and mean, that's excellent. Tower of Babel. <laughs> I mean, it's great, isn't it? I mean, I can just think of so many places that we can use that Tower of Babel. Yeah, that's, um, some of that is. I, I'll just add this very little part onto that. Is some of this is that there, there's hitting a point where I'm, I'm, and not to use a word that already gets misused um, within the training community, but there's a certain threshold that yeah. I'm hitting with these things yeah. where I feel like I, 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 I'm, I'm beyond satiated. I, I cannot. Um, so, and one of those comes with, it's not just the amount of confusion in language, but it's the amount of degrees and not degrees, certifications that are being offered. And that, you know, oh, you, you came to this two hour thing, or you went to that one thing, and now I have these letters that I add on, and it's this never ending list of letters that are going on to the end, and people are branding different things. And some of the difficulty is that there are people even people that come from an academic background that are the ones that are selling these things. So um, it's very hard or, or it's very difficult to see. So I'm trying to make some sense of this in some way, but a little bit of this is some of my own frustration. So I hope that's not being conveyed yeah. so much that yeah. it's me going, okay, let's stop. I don't want to be a jerk. It's the, so, un it's the unintended that. consequence of how quickly our industry is starting to evolve. Because 10 years ago, I mean, you were lucky if you could even find somewhere to get education. And now the marketplace is saturated. Yes, yes and no. I think this has always been a profession that's had a some some gurus or whatever, people on a pedestal that that people follow and they they learn their systems whether they're right or not yeah. or founded in science and i think a lot of those people used slightly different language and and the word you were using eddie branding this is as much about branding and making what you're doing yeah. look a little bit different from everybody else yeah. when really it's all the same old old it, stuff it's supposed to be but yeah. I, I, I'm going to uh, – there's another component of that, and you just mentioned something that's really important, Don, which is that term guru and that thing. we got to stop that. This idea that there's somebody somehow that when they say something, we are, everybody needs to stop and listen because somehow that's the oracle of the information uh, that's supposed to be held is absolutely counterproductive to a science of anything. Um, yep. Get rid of the gurus, kill your idols, stop it. That's not the way science works. That's not the way academia is meant to work. We do not. Um, and unfortunately, you see places where that's done. I will say there, there are places in academia where that's still done. And, and one primary example of that is when some, some of the cult of behaviorism that actually does occur. So you will see behaviorists that do this when they – they say something, and then to be clear that this was important, they say, oh, and Skinner said it. And that's not – that is guruism within academia. So it's not like scientists and academicians don't also do this. Um, the, you know, every great scientist got lots of things wrong. Yeah. 
Darwin, Mendel, they all did. Darwin was the first Lamarckian. So it's not like Darwin had weird beliefs about inheritance of these things that were not true. Absolutely wrong. There is a whole field of genetics called non-Mendelian genetics because Mendel got so much wrong. Every scientist gets things wrong. They're not gurus. They are not to be adhered to, to hang on to every word that they say. And we need and part of the problem is we're not training people to recognize how to how to how to evaluate this information. So we have that. I Anyway, I, I'm going to I'm getting back on a soapbox, so I'm going to stop there and uh, let other people jump in. Christina, you've had your hand up for a while. Yeah, I mean, I just want to reiterate that I, I agree. I mean, I think that there is there really is a problem with this deciding that something is a b or c and and i think a lot of this comes to go back back to what nikki said i think a lot of this does come from the way that this industry has grown and there hasn't i mean there's been lots of learning science but uh you know until relatively recently, there hasn't been a lot of research on applied animal behavior. And so I think what happened is you had a field that developed where we had to make things up because there was no other option. And now you have all these people that kind of came of age, so to speak, in that environment, while at the same time, we do now have science that's starting to come in. And, and I'm not going to say I mean, there's also, there are areas where we've known things for a really long time and that still hasn't infiltrated into the training world. But I think that it's, there's this tension now. And I think one of the challenges that we have in this field right now is to bring those two worlds together. And and because the other thing that's happening, which I don't think you see as much in other fields, is that there's researchers that are out there that are researching animal behavior that have no idea what's going on in the applied world. And so they're not, I'm not going to say they're not researching important things, but I think that their research could be helped and informed by having those conversations and dialogues that they may not be willing to have with people who aren't academics. Certainly not all PhDs are like that, but uh, they're out there. Um, and so I think this is what you know, really comes back to like making sure that trainers and behavior consultants are trained in those critical thinking skills and making sure that like um, what Edwarder was saying is that they're not just going to one person or two or three people and following right. everything that they say. And that's where I think we get into some of these <clears throat> culture war wars, right? Because, you know, I'm in, you know, Mary's camp and I'm in, you know, Maria's camp. And if Mary and Maria disagree with each other, then we're just fighting with each other without having some kind of principles to come back to. So I know we've spent a lot of time on this, but I do think it's it's really important. Uh, and, and then when you have a really strong understanding of the basic principles, it gets easier to communicate that to clients. And one of the things, I mean, anyone that's ever taught will probably tell you that one of the best ways to learn material is to teach it Yes. because you'll go in there and you're starting to yeah. try and communicate it yeah. and you don't, you get really lost on things. And so I think that one of the ways to build up these skills is to practice these things, you know, 
I really advocate with my students is that write them down, come up with scripts and practice these conversations that you struggle with outside of your, you know, teaching time so that you're not sitting there with an audience trying to figure out what you're going to say. So I've got a hypothetical scenario here. So you're, you're planning out a training conference with different topics. We've, we've hit on a couple of really important things. And so one of the topics you decide to have is, you know, how to be a critical thinker. And another topic you've got is how to understand and use the basic terminology of the science in our industry. And then you've got one called dog aggression. <laughs> you, you see what I'm getting at? How do we get our profession who really needs to know this stuff to be as interested in the basics as some of this other stuff, which always sounds sexy, for lack of a better word. Okay, I mean, I, I can't critically think my way through that. I need, um, <laughs> I need you to dumb that down a little bit for me, please. Well, there's over my years in this profession, I've been part of planning a number of conferences and there's all stuff we know people in this profession need to know. Um, basic business skills. And historically, those are the things that always have the lowest attendance mm -hmm. at a seminar. Everybody wants to go to aggression or you could even put nutrition in that. Cat. I mean, yeah. there are some things that everybody just wants to get all wound up over. And some of the basics is just really often yeah. shunned. Don, can I give you uh, can I give you a real life example and 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 we'll roll with it from here, um, which is I've spent uh, most of my career, but especially over the past uh, half a decade, going to uh, training conferences and presenting on data collection. Okay, so I'm doing exactly what you're saying there, Don, where it's you know, come to my talk to learn how to handle aggression. Come to my talk to learn about uh, what makes your dog do this or that. And then, hi, I'll teach you about data, right? So I'm that person that has to teach the, the uh, necessary but boring, supposedly boring thing that's happening. And fortunately now there's, there's more people that are going out that have taken interest and, and I hope that's at least in part attributed to my uh, pushing this need for trainers to take data, but we're seeing more talks about how people can collect data. So I'm not the only one making this argument um, for that's been going on for half a decade. But part of the answer I do really think is that the topic shouldn't matter so much as the way you present the information. So I've, I've rarely had somebody walk away from one of my data talks where they're like, I, I've had the opposite response, I should say, where people are like, I really expected to hate what everything you were going to say and you somehow made it entertaining. Um, so that's hopefully a good thing. And I think the topic shouldn't matter quite. A, we still have to, you should not use the topic as an, ex, as an excuse for why you were uh, not effectively communicating the information that you presented no, no. any any more than uh well this was important and i needed to tell the pet owner about i needed to tell 
the the guardian, the the pet parent, the owner about this information because it's so important. And I had to force them to sit down and listen to this boring talk. Well, wait, where is the effective communication for teaching about that thing? So I think we do. Part of the answer is that. I mean, I don't want to take away from the fact that there just are topics that are going to be more difficult and less difficult to teach. But I do think sometimes we overemphasize that point so much in how we are communicating with other people. But I think I what think you... <laughs> Sorry. I, say, I think we need, when we're trying to give those kinds of presentations, I think it's really important to make sure that we're communicating why it is relevant and how right. it can help you be a better trainer and get better results. Because yeah. 100% data collection, for example, I am sure, I, you know, I don't know the data behind it, but I would bet that that ha can have a really profound impact on success because how else are you tracking your techniques, you know, and, and other it, than collecting data? I so mean, go ahead, Nikki. Well, just, and, and I just, I just, in most learning, the why is actually the most important part because it's what right. makes it important, salient and pertinent to the learner. And as learners, particularly as adults, if we don't understand the, the, the relevance of what someone's actually trying to communicate to us, we're not going to listen and we're not going to learn. We're not going to go through any sort of learning cycle. I mean, it's why the Marines always use the expression in order to, because when you're teaching someone to do something critical, they need to know in order to achieve what, why. Right. So, so that if their system breaks down, they can still, they can still accomplish the mission because they can say, well, hang on a minute. We were told to go ABC and we've had to go AC, but in order to get to D, we now know how to accomplish that. And I think it's one of the things that we often tend to miss is, and a lot of dog training clients and somebody actually said on Facebook, there's a question on Facebook for us that they lose a lot of clients. And I think sometimes people drop out and they, when you ask them why, they'll say, well, I just don't get why this is important. And that's yeah. on us for not explaining. Right. Right. Why it's and, and I'm not just talking why is it important to train a sit. I'm talking why is it important that you say yes the minute the dog's bum hits the floor. Why is that important rather than saying yes as the dog is doing it or 10 seconds after the dog has done it. So it's not just general task why. It's every criteria. Why are these criteria so important? Yeah, I think we've kind of come almost full circle here in some ways from what Judy started with and saying we have to be effective at communicating with our clients. And we, we, we have expanded what effective means. I mean, we have to know what we're talking about, but we have to be persuasive and be able to convince clients that this is, this is important. And, you know, that's not something everybody is good at. Now you can learn to do that, but that's part of it too, is it not? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a book about this 10 years ago because I thought it was so critical to what we do is how pet professionals teach humans. And, and not, it's not just about task analysis, it's about project management, communi communication skills, the power of persuasion, time management, managing conflict, because these are all the skills you need as you navigate with a client through a training program. And I think, again, that's why we've got to really enjoy being around people and teaching people. We can't get from A to Z without many of those skills. Otherwise, we lose them. 
Hey, Don. Um, one of the things I think we've also got to recognize is that, and especially nowadays, communication is done in a myriad of forms. And so a lot of times we may not be having direct verbal communication with someone. It may be through emails or text or whatever else, or even for the trainers who do videos um, to post either for their clients or, or you know, for general public, et cetera. Um, we've got to recognize that there are all kinds of language out there now. And so that we, whatever demographic we're dealing with, we have to be able to communicate effectively with that demographic as well. Uh, and not just a demographic. I mean, it's a cultural demographic, socioeconomic, whatever. But the other thing too is we've got to understand that communicating in our profession, first and foremost, should be asking and not telling. Because if we can't ask what a client is looking for, what a client is hoping to accomplish, realistic goals, expectations, et cetera, uh, we're going to end up wasting a lot of time, effort, and probably end up with a dissatisfied client. No, all, all good points. And you, people learn different ways. And that's something that a lot of trainers don't recognize either. I gave a talk on that many, many years ago at a conference, and it was one of those talks that managed to attract a, a very small cadre of people. But it's it's a really important thing. We all learn differently. And um, we have to recognize our clients do as well. And this was in the era before social media. And, and now people, there's, well, at least from my perspective, this is an opinion, seem to have much shorter attention spans than they used to too, which makes this a lot more challenging. I think that's a topic for discussion in the future, actually. Why? Because and John and I, we talk about this a lot in board meetings. Why, why do pet professionals, dog trainers, behavior consultants, pet sitters, dog walkers, you often see posts like, well, I need more clients. I can't make a living. I've got to find a way to grow. But even when there's really good, solid education made available for many of the skills that many of us don't have because that wasn't something we we had acquired through our education or previous career nobody attends them i mean at ppg we 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 put conferences on for free in the past up your business game is a conference we do every year it's coming up uh, at the end of may rebecca can post in the group you know two days education all about marketing communication email growing your business and i can guarantee it will be the worst attended event that we do we still do it every year because it's important and people say well i don't i don't think i need it but this is the same person that last week was saying i might have to close i can't bring i'm i'm struggling to bring customers in why why is that i think anyway i think it i think it's a topic that needs to be explored Christine, I think that's because then you're laughing. Did you, did you experience this? I mean, no, well, no, I've heard of, yeah. I mean, I'm familiar with it. And, and I know I've, I've heard people say that, you know, they give surveys about what people want to hear about. And they'll say things like business Depression. or time management right. or, and then they don't attend those. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm laughing because I was just thinking this is more of a human psychology question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, 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 that's what I was going to say. You know, there, this is something that I've been, communicating quite a bit to other people about, uh, especially when it comes to, and when I talk to things like my research methods students and I, I talk about this stuff, I say there's, there's so, it's such a common thread within so much psychological research, how much of a mismatch there is between things that people say and things that people do. Yeah. And, and there is a very big mismatch. Also, my joke's a little late on this, but Sam, I was gonna say, I do most of my communication through dance 
So, uh, so you're on that may be, huh? yeah, yeah, it may be why why people like my data talks. So, um, but no, I I think this is important is to recognize that, and and this is going back to this Facebook question. If somebody's asking what's happening, what why I I'm I've lost this client. I want to know why I've lost this client. What's happening with like I'm looking for honest feedback. Well, we can talk about. Okay, first off, is what people are saying going to match why they're doing what they're doing? Because it's that's there's a the very clear yeah. theme throughout so much, and and I, I say this when and I'm involved in survey research as well. Uh, the vast majority of my research happens to include at least some behavioral component, but I have to uh, I'm involved. I have a couple papers that are in press right now that are based on survey owner survey data with domestic cats working with one of my doctoral students and I bring this this issue up about how are we going to get this to match with behavior because we know there's this mismatch between what people say and what they do so where are we evaluating that component of it so that's the first part there is okay but even what does that mean to get an honest answer about something that somebody says? But the second part of this, and I think this is more important because that first part is a real tough question. And I'm not sure that any of us are going to be able to provide a great answer for it. But I will say a second part that can at least start to lead into that, which is what are some of the ways that you might be able to yourself systematically evaluate what is happening with your clients? So what are some of the ways you can actually be involved in some form of data, qualitative, quantitative, whatever it is, what are some of the, because as I like to say, any data is better than no data. And I'm always going to talk about the importance of quantitative experimental data, but any data is better than no data. So even if you have some level of qualitative information that you're getting, that's better than no information. And then if you can make it systematic in some way, are there sets of questions you can ask? Is there a process that you can look at that you are asking rather than just saying at the end of today, this is how I feel these clients feel about me. Is there something you can do that's just an approximation to being more systematic, more quantitative, more evaluative about the information that you're getting? And then how can you turn that into a process that provides some kind of feedback? That's what I'd be really interested in. And I think those are the kind of things that trainers are the best people to provide information to scientists about. So there's some very basic systems that any doll trainer can implement right off the bat, which is teaching using train, test, train, working in sets of five with minimum criteria, pushing when you get 95% accuracy, dropping when you don't or lowering criteria. And it amazes me as we teach it at diagnostics with any skill, we do we train, test, train because you can track it. And if you're working with multiple clients, you can track progress on individual skills with individual clients so you don't waste their time. But here's the golden bullet here. If the client understands the train, test, train system, once you've gone, they can keep pushing criteria and building the skill because they understand right. the process. So you're, yeah. not, so you're not only giving them skills they can use in your absence. And we used to do workshops where we would build skills at the front end and actually have everyone at the workshop tracking progress and on day on the day on the last day we'd, we'd graph it so they can see how quick and someone used yeah. Lauren Ward so they can see how quickly these skills are accelerating 
And, you know, I mean, Angel knows, I mean, he's done some stuff with diagnostics. I mean, we, Louise and I, uh, we're just sticklers over it because otherwise you're going to a client's home and you're just literally throwing stuff against the wall. You don't remember where you were at, where they were at, what criteria you were at, how, re how high the re reinforcement was. And that is a simple, simple, simple system that anyone can use within five minutes. It's systematic. Yeah, it's pure. Yeah. And, you, and people don't realize you, it's, this is raw data you're collecting, raw data. And I would argue to come back to why we care. I mean, I mean, you're talking about why you care, but I, I was having, I was really struggling with clients feeling frustrated or anxious, maybe frustrated is not the right word, but very anxious at the end of the training packages that how are we going to do this? And they're asking all of these questions and they were really the wrong questions, you know? And so I restructured my approach and I started to put together handouts that were geared at teaching these things. How, you know, how do you know when it's time to move to the next step? How do you know when it's time to back up a step? If you feel like you are, you know, if you've determined that something is too hard for your dog, what are your options in terms of making it easier? And I now, I mean, I used to not do this because I thought it was too hard and they wouldn't care, but I, I went to teaching students how to put together a training plan and they're never going to put together a training plan. Like I put together a training plan, mm -hmm. but I mean, it's kind of like no data is, is or some data is better it's than better. no data, yeah. right? Like uh -huh. some knowledge of how to progress that way is better than nothing. And what I noticed is that not only did we get better results, but the clients seemed far less anxious. And I felt a lot better about what I was doing <laughs> because I wasn't wrapping up training packages thinking, why are they not? Like, why can they not do these really basic things? Yeah. Because I was really focusing on the wrong skills a lot of the time, as well, opposed to teaching the client how to progress on their own. Well, and I mean, a really good example was the puppy class example I gave where right in week three or four, the instructors are going, well, hang on a minute. Why are your dogs not progressing? And I'm like, because they're not, they can't bloody use the reinforcement system that you haven't covered with them. Because nobody had spent time at the front end talking about clicker timing and placement of reinforcement. And where, and for me, if that's all covered at the front end, then when you start talking about skills, it's easy because they understand some of that stuff. So instead of it being done at the front end, it's being loaded at the back end after someone's already had not had good results and they're thinking, well, this clicker training stuff doesn't work. You know, at week four, I mean, if you go to a puppy class and at week four, they're still using a clicker as a remote control. I mean, that's down, that's down to us. That's on our shoulders, not on the client. That's not how you use a clicker? <laughs> no. I thought you used it um, to call your dog in from the backyard. Yeah. I, <laughs> look, I've been using the Jurassic World technique, so I don't know where you all are. <laughs> I mean, you know, with jokes aside, it made me cry. I'm, I'm in a, a, a fourth week of a puppy class. And I've got people, and I'm there as a pet owner, and there's people in there like just clicking like crazy. And you just think, why is the instructor not addressing this? It must drive the dogs crazy. Who, oh, yeah. I, I was trying to remember who told that story one time of uh, there was somebody that somebody was talking about. Uh, 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 they were there with somebody, they, they were like in line at a pet store and uh, somebody asked a question in front of line of them or something about, where's that, like, like what's that? And this other person was like, that's a clicker. 
And uh, and they got really excited about this person knew what a clicker was. And like, what do you use it for? And the person's like, oh, you use it for training. And so they were getting more excited about how, you know them talking about using it for training. They're like, oh, how do you use it? And the person's like, oh. And they pick it up. I'm about to ruin this for about everybody in the room. If there's any dogs around, you know, there's not a conditional discrimination learn. But the person apparently picked up the clicker. They're like, oh, you just keep doing this until the animal stops doing what you don't want it to do. So, uh, well, that's one way. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, punishing as well, I might add. Yeah. yeah. Right, At right, least right, right. they weren't so. holding another kind of clicker or yeah. another kind of button. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, I started right. every time I would teach a class, my first session, no dogs were allowed. And all we covered were mechanical skills yeah. and we practiced those. And we made, I had games where they would use their mechanical skills yeah Yeah. Yeah. all kinds of fun things and that's what I do with my clients when I my first appointment with them is mechanical skills and we discuss other things but we always focus on that first you know you have to put the primer on the wall before you put the paint yeah we do the same we do the same Mm -hmm. in our dog training programs because we, Louise and I sat back and went, we, we couldn't believe the number of people coming into those programs who just who didn't know some of the basics. So one of the first things they do is they have to play several clicker games where, you know, with tennis balls, with reinforcement and placement. And once they've got those harness, then move on. It's, it, it's astounding. And you wonder yeah. why, and you, what's that Jurassic concept you were talking about, Eduardo? I, the Jurassic. I, have yeah. you not seen the example of clicker training in Jurassic yeah. World? Oh, you're. I'm going to ruin your your weekend, Nikki. Now go I go watch it. Now I'm all just, of a sudden interested in watching. Just it. watch yeah. that scene with uh, what's his name, uh, Chris Pratt, um, and he's got the Velociraptors, and you're just you're going to have something that's soft enough that won't break when you throw it against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> so, I had no interest in Jurassic Park until right now. It was yeah. a Jurassic, it's a Jurassic <laughs> yeah. World, I think. Jurassic World, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I watched the first movie, I'm like, it's so inaccurate, I can't handle it. So I- Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I know, the Velociraptors are, are, you know, bigger than a tall house cat, so it's already tough to watch, right? So... They should have just they should have they should have had penguins uh, yeah. act, you know actually <laughs> pretending to be the velociraptors and it would have made a little more sense. Even back then the cavemen living with the dinosaurs were breeding for size. So we you know had the the, the, the teapot velociraptors and the teapot T-Rex and now, now that we're going to go through the full level of inaccuracy there, let's just <laughs> let's just throw every period of time in with human history, yeah. prehistoric or not, and we're good. <laughs> I wanted to um, come back to another skill, which is we've really been talking about this the whole time, but to just say it directly, I think another really critical skill is business skills. And several people have kind of brought this up a little bit. Yeah. And, and I think... In terms of how do we get people to do these things, I mean, I wonder if part of the answer comes from, or part of the solution comes from the educators and the people who are setting the standards, because people may not come. I mean, they may have to be, you know, we may need a reinforcement system or some kind of better motivation to get them to attend these kinds of things. But again, the problem, if you don't have good business skills 
and you don't know how to structure your business and your services in a way that can help people and their animals, again, you're not going to be doing as much good as you could be doing. And and I know a lot of people who are phenomenal trainers and behavior consultants, and they're not structuring their services in a way that allows people to succeed. And this is beyond the teaching part. You know, it's what are your policies and and what, you know, how are you selling your services? And, and so I think, and I don't know, I mean, for me personally, I hated, you know, I think this is true for a lot of people in this field. I have had no interest in business. I didn't care about it at all. I didn't want to do it. Uh, The only reason I opened a business is so that I could train the way I want to train, right? So, but what happened is I was struggling and I have enough anxiety that I couldn't handle that level of struggle. I just couldn't. And so I started looking for solutions. But what I found is that it really, I find when you think about it in the perspective of being able to more effectively change behavior, it suddenly becomes much more interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, it's, I, I mean, we talk about it a lot of PPG. I mean, I personally, I mean, I studied business. That was what I did. I mean, I operated businesses for years. I mean, business for me is sexy. It's probably sexier than dog training. I mean, I love analyzing profit and loss statements and looking at balance sheets. I mean, I love all that stuff. And, and, and let me give you an example. Um, I was doing some, I used to do some business consulting. I don't do it anymore because I'm a control freak and you can't control what somebody else does with their own business. And I would actually get more frustrated than they would. But how many times would a trainer say to me, well, um, I don't think that will work. And I say, well, um, you know, having having opened multiple businesses and having experienced it and and you know i mean a, a good example is consumer behavior there's a science behind consumer behavior there's a science behind why marketeers do what they do there's a science behind how we can through respondent conditioning we can influence people to make purchases but said customers for me would say well i just i'm, I'm not convinced that will work and i and i would say to them What's the most frustrating thing for you when you go into a client's home and you're trying to teach them how to dog train? They'd say, when they talk to me about dominance and they're adamant that it actually exists and it blah, blah, blah. And why is that? Well, because the science, the current science now says the following. Well, that's what I'm saying to you, that the current science now says the following (laughs) about marketing, about purchasing, about consumer behavior. So I think all of us in our own areas of expertise have that struggle breaking through that tower of babel as eduardo said i would actually give it a stronger term than that but we're we're, we're public so i won't and but but we all struggle with it i mean all of us do whether it's convincing our clients or whether it's business to business trying to help and support other professionals i mean it's it's it really is it it really is very frustrating And, and like you say christina it's very frustrating for me because i can't tell you how many very competent professional highly effective dog trainers end up going out of business and going back to their corporate job because they can't make it work. And that for me is heartbreaking because we need these people. Yeah. You know, yeah I, 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 oh, oh sorry, God. I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to have to get going in a second because speaking of, of talking to people, I got to go teach some students um, here in a little bit. And by the next, uh, it's worth pointing out that I do have my, the, the Australian government has granted me my permanent work visa. 
That's been that's done. Um, amazing, two plus years in the process. But so next time I'm in one of these, I may be in Australia. Uh, I should be there by early July, I think, is when we plan on having me there. Uh, but the other thing I was going to say, this is going to be less on the business end of this, more on the uh, managing employees and running, uh, work, managing behavior within your business. But there is an entire field within behavior analysis called organizational behavior management, or OBM, where uh, people have talked extensively. And that's I was just looking on my bookshelf. I'm sure I have it somewhere. Um, I think I have it back with a bunch of my behavior analytic texts, but um, there are some great, there's an Abernathy text on uh, using, uh, I think I think it might actually just be called organizational behavior management or, so, but it, a, a lot of it, again, this is managing employees. It's at least business related and talking about the application of, of reinforcement principles in general to managing business. So I think that that's a great place to start to look at how can we apply these same principles. Um, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that Karen Pryor was talking about back in the day with how just to simply use reinforcement principles to manage our own behavior or any kind of behavior that we can think of. And that's certainly been a major component of behavior analysis. So it's worth thinking about um, as well like that. So anyway, um, I should get going, so thank you everybody and see i've even got a goose t-shirt on today so um i'll try to not be aggressive with my students at least not as aggressive as a goose so we'll, we'll leave it at that thanks thank you eddie bye eddie. bye so i think we're, we're reaching time where we kind of need to to sum this up but I, I we've had a good discussion today here there are obviously a lot of key skills that a pet professional needs to have that extend beyond understanding animal behavior and understanding pet physiology. And I think it's important that if we're going to be a well-rounded profession, um, you know, we all have to, uh, to, to work on those as well. I mean, one of the things I think, I came into this as a second career and I spent 17 years in the medical device industry, about half doing marketing and product management and half doing um, quality assurance and developing checklists and data collection protocols for evaluating things because I, I originally had an engineering background. And so, you know, those, those skills have helped me build my business. They've been every bit as important to me uh, as the pet skills. And I think we yeah. just need to help people uh, recognize that. But while we've got a little bit of time left and uh, Christina, you mentioned evaluating science. I'd like to use the remaining time we have just about how important that is in developing some critical thinking skills. Because just because it's a study in a peer-reviewed journal doesn't mean it's gospel. Yeah, <laughs> we only have six minutes left. <laughs> I, well, well, this might be another topic, but yeah. give us a teaser. Well, oh man. So there's just so many things to consider. And when we're looking at science, we talk a lot about the importance of replication. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm gonna give you guys an example. Um, there was a poster that was presented. I wish I had it in front of me because it's, well, for us super geeky science people, it's funny, but um, there was a poster that was presented, I think at a neuroscience conference maybe. 
and it had this very technical fancy name and basically you know it said something about finding um a neural activity in a, a dead salmon like post-mortem and they made this big deal out of it and basically the whole paper was about or the whole poster was about how about error in um in science and so what had happened is they put this dead they put a whole bunch they put pumpkins and all of these different things in a in an mri scanner to detect brain activity and it came up in this dead salmon that this dead salmon had brain activity this is a salmon that had been dead for like you know i don't know how long but and the whole point was that any single study can come back with inaccurate results so if you look at one study if you looked at this one study and you said oh <laughs> look, there's, there's brain activity, and you took that and ran with it, you would be, you know, completely wrong. And if you're making decisions based on that, um, without considering the rest of the body of knowledge, then that's going to lead to a lot of really problematic decisions. And so any single study will always have things that they miss. So when I teach my webinars, my Research Bytes webinars, we always, always talk about, well, did they do this? Did they do that? And frequently the answer is no. And so there's really critical information that's missing from every study because you just, you can, I mean, behavior is really, really complex. And so you can never get at anything in one study. So you have to be able to look at multiple studies and see how this single study falls into everything else that's been done. And so... And I, I, again, we, I could go on and on and on about this, but it's really hard to do that, right? Be, if you're out there, you're running a business and you're trying to keep up with the science, it can be really difficult to do. Uh, but if you are reading a study, well, I would say first, if you're reading something about a study and you think it's a really good idea and you want to use that information, you really should go back and read the study itself to make sure that what the people are saying is actually what's in the study. And second of all, if you're really, if you find a study really, really fascinating, I would at least go in and read the introduction and the discussion, because if it's a good paper, if it's peer reviewed, it's going to give some kind of review of work that's already been done. And then we'll try and place that paper in the context of the rest of the research. And typically they also say, these are the limitations of this study. I mean, it should. <laughs> these are the limitations of this study. And these are the things, um, the, some of the questions that we still have. And so I heard somebody, I, I wish I could remember who it was. It wasn't a dog trainer. It was someone in a totally different field. But they said that science has this really funny characteristic of the more information we get, the more questions we have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um I could say tons more, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I know we don't we don't have a ton more time. So. Christina, how do we avoid the situations? I don't know if anybody saw Dr. Simon Gabois' post on Facebook a couple of days ago. Yeah, he was posting. Um, I don't remember the topic, but he said he was a bit irked because there were people posting about um, respondent conditioning, and they were using a, a study that was quite old and had, and so dog trainer or somebody had taken this study and gone, oh, this is gospel, posted it. And he said it was absolutely inaccurate. There was, because they weren't taking into consideration A through X, 
Plus, there have been, as you say, additional scientific studies done based on what that initial study had missed out. And the initial study had said, we need further investigation into the following. And obviously, other scientists had done further investigation. And a lot of that had now cancelled out and neutralized some of the original study. So... How do you how do we communicate to people that picking up a 1990 study may not be the most re- recent or relevant that you may need to go a little bit? It's, for me, it's my it's I also have a jigaboo about people that read a, that go to an academic website. Don't buy it. Don't buy the paper and just literally take the abstracts and sell that as gospel. Yeah, but the, the abstracts, the abstract. I mean, you need to read the paper. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I mean, I think it's difficult because. If you're not trained in science, it's going to be difficult to read and understand the paper. And when I say not trained, I don't necessarily mean you have to have an academic degree. Yeah. But if, if you yeah. are not familiar with scientific principles and you're just starting, it's going to be overwhelming. Yeah. And, I, and I, there's a wonderful article out there. Um, I'll see if I can send it to you, Nikki. And uh, it, it's written by a PhD about how horrible reading scientific papers is. It's a, it's a humor article, but... <laughs> It's if, if I guess what I want to say is if, if you're out there and you're trying to go and read scientific articles and you're struggling, that's not you. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, it is a little yeah. bit, right? It'll get easier as you yeah. do it more, but yeah. like they're really difficult to read and some of them are written better yeah. than others. Um, but, isn't, but, but, but that's why we need academics in the industry because we need yes. people like yourself and Eduardo because yeah. not everybody, I mean, it's the same with business skills. Nobody can have all these skills. You right. cannot be and a drug owner that has all these skills. You can't, there's not enough right. time in life to get them. And nobody can have the time. I, right. I mean, the reason right. I... Right. So we I, need people like yourself that yeah. do all that work and then, <laughs> find, and then find a way to communicate that to the generic or the, the, the sort of general right. dog training public. Yeah. And I literally stopped training dogs and taking on private clients so that I could focus full time on keeping up with the science because right. you, you can't. And so right. you do, right. you really need to rely on other people. And when you're listening to people, even if they're talking about the science, the science says this, research says this, make sure they're giving you sources and they're yeah. talking about the sources. And really, once things are 10 years old or more, they're usually outdated yeah. at the very least you should be looking for more up you know more recent papers that confirm that you know some things yeah. do stand the yeah. test of time like natural selection but um a lot don't or they're modified that's what he was talking about with the rescorla Wa- wagner you know the yeah, that's, yeah exactly. i mean i don't know what yeah it was the wagner yeah yeah but yeah. that's been modified a lot of times and it has it has certain it explains a lot of things but there are certain things that it doesn't explain yeah. Um, and yeah. so just, I think keeping an open mind and, and reading things and finding them interesting, but then using that as a sort of starting point to look into more information and, you know, um, and I don't, I mean, I, I, anybody else on this panel, I just don't believe that dog trainers or behavior consultants need to need to be able to do all that necessarily. I mean, if it's something that you really enjoy doing, knock yourself out, but you don't have to be able to do that to run a successful business. Yeah. Yeah, you just need to be able to know who to go to to get the information from. Because you can't, I mean, keeping, I can't even tell you how much time. (laughs) You know, when I give my little monthly webinars, that's usually seven or eight hours of prep time for a one-hour talk. Because I read the paper 
And then I have to go in and I have to like check other sources and make sure that what that author is saying is accurate. And so you can't do it. And I don't think, you know, when I say that dog trainers and behaviorists need to be able to understand how to critically evaluate the science, that doesn't mean that you were necessarily the one that is going into the the primary source and doing it yourself because you'll never have time. It's more about learning how to evaluate the information that other people are giving you. Right. And, and, I, I, and I, I'm just going to jump on one thing we said earlier, because I, I don't think we should just write off all dog trainers that operationalize processes. And I know that we were talking about branding, but there's nothing wrong with taking a scientific principle and operationalizing it, giving it a different name and operationalizing it, as long as you are not bastardizing the science and what right. you are doing yeah. is is okay so we need to be really careful that we don't sort of make people feel bad about them branding stuff because everybody does that that's how the business world works you right you learn something you figure out an easier better faster way of doing it and you go ahead and do it but but we do need to be careful like you say that we're not so so anyway so to be a highly competent dog trainer I mean, respondent conditioning, there are, you can operationalize the way that you counter condition. So somebody doesn't have to be able to cite every respondent conditioning paper or the Wagner or a scholar. I mean, they don't, if they, if they understand how to functionally analyze behavior and how to build a desensitization counter conditioning chart and then counter condition each criteria, if they've learned that from a good practitioner, they're going to be able to nail that in their business. So I, I don't think we all have to be super, super super geeky I just I just don't um because I think sometimes and I'll give you an example when I first opened my business back in 2005 my business took off because I have good business skills that was my background my business skills took off that anyone looking at my business would have thought I was the best dog trainer on the planet and I was a crap dog trainer (laughs) like all of us we start off with very little knowledge but so my business skills outpaced my dog training skills and I think sometimes if you're too, if you spend too much time with the academia, the academia can outpace your ability to perform a service. Uh, yeah. 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 And, and, can, and ultimately, also, we need to be able to perform services. That's what we need to be able to do. Right. And that's why I think mechanical skills are also important, right? So you can have an academic yeah. that really knows their right. stuff that cannot go. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you how many psychologists that I've had as clients that don't understand the basic principles of learning theory yeah or like I had a psychologist that was a professor that taught learning theory and had not applied it to his dog I mean once I started doing it he's like oh and then I mean everything fell into place and he like could do it but it's they're different skills oh Rebecca King will tell you in Oxford Mississippi we 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 had a dog training client who was the department chair of the psychology department of the the Mississippi um, Oxford Mississippi University and he spent the first lesson trying to teach us about when to click and when to reinforce because he didn't he didn't understand he'd never done it practically and it was only in like lesson three when all right I get it guys I get it I I understand it (laughs) because he wasn't looking at the fact that we were dealing with an emotional sentient animal and that we couldn't just forge ahead with these pr- principles if the animal was not comfortable with it. So, you know, I mean, there's a place for everybody. I, I just don't want everyone thinking they have to be a PhD in ABA. And I agree with that. Um, and I, you can't, yeah. Win. yeah, you know, I mean, you can't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's you, you other don't skills have, that are important. Have the time to do the rest of that. I mean, the business skills, the communication skills are equally yeah. important if you want to serve your clients. Yeah. 
I mean, you don't have to be good at social media, but you'll reach a point where you might want to employ somebody else to do it for you. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to be able to be, you don't have to have bookkeeping skills, but at some point you might have to employ a bookkeeper. So, and I, you know. Yeah, and I think that's another important point too, because I think a lot of trainers are scared to hire people, including myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you don't have to do it all, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's, re- so one of the skills, right, is yeah. um, delegation. You, once you get to a certain point, you know, it starts to make sense to hire an accountant or hire a social right. media manager or hire an administrator so that you don't have to do these other things. And, and how do you make those decisions? You look at the return on your investment of your time. You know, if you're struggling bookkeeping five hours a month and you're crap at it and you're producing books that at the end of the year, when you go to your tax account and they go, oh my God, did the dog do this? Then, I mean, I, whenever I have anything to do, I look at it and say, how many hours is that going to take me? I value my time at 100 bucks an hour. I can pay someone for less to do it than it would cost me to do it. Because in those four or five hours that I'm going to do it, I could, I could see seven clients and actually make more money. Right. You, know? you know, this doesn't necessarily follow that it's a good advocacy panel topic, but it could be a good panel topic. And that is, you know, how do you decide when to add employees? I mean, if somebody early in my corporate career, if someone (laughs) someone would have suggested to me I was going to own a business someday, I would have said, you're nuts. There's no way way I wanted that responsibility. Um, And you know what, Don? That's the biggest fear. In all the years I used to consult, not just with dog trainers, but with small businesses, that is always, I mean, how many on this panel will confirm that is the biggest fear for a business owner? The complications, Mm -hmm. the intricacies, the legalities, of hiring yeah. and managing people. And it's the one thing that stops everybody from, from going from being a sole proprietor to having multiple people working for them. And actually it's one of the easiest things to do. You just have to find the right people to help you. Yeah. And you've got, and you've got to understand on them. Yeah, and, yeah. The, and the systems and pro- processes yeah. you need to follow, it's not difficult. It's not difficult. I mean, one of the things that we, we did some research about 10 years ago with some of our um, individual dogsmiths that, None of our dogsmiths could could go over bringing in $75,000 a year. That one person, that was the cap, pretty much the cap. If you want to bring in more revenue than that, you have got to bring in other people to take on some of the workload. You, you know what, Nick? You also bring up something else, and especially for new trainers, and even as, as trainers progressing their careers, I think all of us have been there, is uh, valuing your skills and your time yeah. As far as pricing what you're worth to clients. Right. Right. Uh, because I know for years, mm-hmm. I, I just. Well, uh, Sam, we have a members meet, learn and grow session. Rebecca, hopefully we'll put it in the chat by the date. And um, it's the, the PPG inclusivity division. Angel might know actually is on our committee. We are rolling out a new member um process where every second month we will facilitate the discussions of a topic so that members can gather around that fireplace and have conversations and get to know each other and network and the first topic is actually pricing so hopefully we can have some really good dialogue while we all learn and grow and become familiar with each other so So. i think we're at a point though i'm going to go around if anyone else has anything they want to add to the topic what key skills should pet professionals be able to demonstrate competently and then we're going to call it a day so anyone have anything else they want to add i just want to add that if any mechanical skill that you are teaching a client you 
better be able to demonstrate it competently before you teach it. <laughs> Otherwise, stay away from it. I mean, you should never go into a training session to teach something that you haven't already mastered. Exactly. Anyone else? Okay, for those of you that have been watching, thank you for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next month where our topic is microaggression. And um, have a great month. Thank you for your great moderation, Don. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.